Let's take up our Bibles together this morning, shall we? Let's open to the book of Hebrews. Let's look at the book of Hebrews, probably one of the most precise, one of the most descriptive and beautiful works of prose, of rhetoric in our Bibles. Let's look at chapter 7 again this morning. I'll begin reading this morning in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, would you oversee what we do today? Would you superintend on what I say today, that your word may go forth unadulterated, pure form, and in clarity. Lord, may you also help those who receive your word to do so, Lord, with full reception, undistorted, and with ready hearts to receive it. Lord, may our view, our estimation, our relationship to Jesus Christ, our high priest, be elevated another level. And may you continue to elevate our understanding of Jesus and his many and sundry and glorious roles. But today, let us ascend to the understanding of who our great high priest is in another facet of his ministry. And this we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody join me in saying, Amen. We began last week in looking into gaining a mature understanding of our new great high priest, Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 begins to present the specificity of the role of Jesus in following the role of Melchizedek, that high priest of old found in Genesis chapter 14, to whom Abraham, in a brief few sentences of Bible history, after Abraham had completed a great victory over the kings in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, having re rescued his uh, nephew Lot from those kings who had captured him, is then met on his victorious return by this uh, 
man, this man in history, King Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace. And it was to this man that Abraham paid a tithe. He paid a tithe unto him, and that becomes part of the study that we need to delve into, for it is used here by the writer of Hebrews to elevate our understanding of the position of Jesus Christ, this new covenant, New Testament, heavenly high priest, that he in and of himself is even greater and should be held higher in the mind of every Hebrew and every person on the face of the earth as being superior even to Father Abraham. If there is a central feature of being Hebrew, it is that you trace your lineage to Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, as the little nursery rhyme goes. However, the son that we know from history that is all important is his singular son, his firstborn son, Isaac. He who is happy, he who made his mother laugh when she found out in her old age she would have a child. And from them then, Jacob, Jacob who became Israel and Israel's 12 tribes from Jacob's 12 sons. Abraham as the progenitor, Abraham as the father, Abraham as the head of the family is in focus today. And I want to give you this morning three proofs that Melchizedek was greater than Father Abraham. Three proofs this morning that Melchizedek was greater than Father Abraham. And, and this is given to us so that we, along with all Hebrews of every age, uh, may have the right view of Jesus Christ and his priestly ministry. His ministry that flows forth from this almost mysterious figure in just two verses of mention in the Old Testament Genesis and then a brief appearance in the Psalms is highlighted now here as a person for us to note for he prefigures Christ, but he's a type of Christ as we've already studied. So the first of three proofs that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. The first proof, he was proved greater than Abraham by his tithe to Melchizedek. He was proved by his tithe given to Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews, verse 4, asks us to make consideration, to think on this historical event. Now consider, he says, how great this man was. What man? Melchizedek. How great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. When we use that term in English, well, even he did this, we are using it in, in a way of sort of an exclamation point, a way to make it stand out from all the others who may have ever given a tithe to this priest of God Most High, Melchizedek. What is important for us is to recognize that Abraham, the father of Israel, 
gave to this man Melchizedek, this priest Melchizedek, from the spoils he had gained in his victory. So Melchizedek, by virtue of reason, is then to be seen as to be of greater stature, of a higher elevated position than even Father Abraham. Now you might be saying, Pastor Fred, why are you belaboring this point? Well, if you were a Jew, or if you were Hebrew, you would know. Because for you, it would be an effrontery for you to make anyone go higher than Abraham in your mind. Even Moses, they wouldn't mind taking a second seat to Abraham because Moses came before, or excuse me, Moses came after Father Abraham by some hundreds of years. This man is their guy. This is the family head. How could it be that anyone in the history of the world for a Hebrew could be greater than their father Abraham? This is why God put Genesis 14 in the Bible. This is why God had a man by the name of Melchizedek in real history. This is why seemingly out of nowhere in the midst of the Genesis account, he goes out to meet Abraham, and Abraham, meeting this priest of God Most High, gives him a tenth of the spoils. It says in verse 5, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham paid him a tithe. And now we see next that the sons of Levi received a commandment of God to have the people give to them a tithe, a tenth of what they are bringing in from the various different arms. And that's not just a tenth of one area of their money. It's from many areas. Don't have time to get into that. But if you're saying you're tithing, uh, better read your Bible on what that means. It's not a 10% once. It's a 10% of many areas of your life. Uh, so just check that out uh, before you say you want to enter into that because that's quite a commitment. But in truth, Israel was to give to this one tribe of men who served in the temple of God a tithe according to God's law. I take you to the book of Numbers where this was being established and reinforced. In Numbers chapter 18, this is the law of God from the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books of the Bible, also known as the law of Moses. So in Numbers chapter 18, verse 21, I pick up reading the commandment that the writer of Hebrews just mentioned. Here it is. Moses said, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes of Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform. So something is given to them because of the work that they do. And what is the work that they perform? The work of the tabernacle of meeting. So God had made a place where he himself would meet with the people of God and they could come closer unto him than at, than at any time in history 
apart from in the Garden of Eden. Ever since the Garden of Eden where men fell, they fell away from fellowship with God, were driven away from His presence, and could no longer have that close fellowship with Him because of sin. Gradually, you will see in the Bible that God is returning man to himself by his means, by his plan. And one of the first steps of returning fellowship and closeness between God and men was the establishment of a tabernacle amongst the people of Israel where they could come and meet with God. And that tabernacle had to be cared for. And what was brought into the tabernacle had to be administered. And the sa sacrifices had to be sacrificed, etc. And the songs had to be sung. And somebody, yes, had to clean the tabernacle. Can I have an amen? All of these things had to be done, but that takes time. And their time was to be rewarded with a wage. A commanded wage to be given from the people of Israel. Now this wasn't just for Israel to come to. This was for all the nations to come to Israel to meet with God. The fact that Israel failed in bringing nations to themselves is a reality, but that was the plan. So they were to give so that the, these Levites could achieve the work that they were given to do, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. I pick up the reading in Numbers 18 again in verse 22. The commandment, Hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. So even though God is dwelling in their midst, there's still a, a level of separation between the people and a holy God. And then a, an established methodology of coming to God through the ministry of the priesthood. And I'll move on. Verse 23, But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. They shall bring uh, the, the, these things to the Lord in, in the help of the atonement of sin. And I read on, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. The Levites did not get a big apportionment of land like the 11 other tribes. Their portion became the tithes taken in from the daily ministration of the tabernacle and later the temple. That's how God planned to provide for his ministers through the hands of their brothers and sisters. So it's a statute forever and they have no inheritance other than a few cities to live in. They need the tithes. Verse 24, Numbers 18. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer, which they offer up as a heave offering before the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, you shall have no inheritance. So there was a commandment for the people of Israel to give to the Levites and to the priests for their work. Why is that significant? It's significant because to Abraham, no such command was ever given. 
for him to give to Melchizedek. In the text of Scripture, nor in this text that we're working at, in Hebrews, do we ever find an order or a command that this was required of Abraham. And so therefore, the tithe is a signal. And it signals a recognition that Melchizedek's position, his purity, and his greatness as a person is greater than that than Father Abraham. To Israel, a commandment was made, you will honor these people with a tithe. From Abraham to Melchizedek, there was no command, and Abraham freely offered, without a command or a statute, this unto Melchizedek, king of Salem. And that tells us of this man's greatness. It was a voluntary, spontaneous, and a necessary thing for him to do because of the position that Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, held. This is counter to what is usually necessary with men. To turn loose of what is ours, most often God needs to guide us. And one of the ways in which he guides us is by way of command. I have found that it does not take long in the history of any human being to learn about private property rights. Am I correct? Even the smallest child knows what is their private property. One of the first words after mommy and daddy that is oftentimes learned by the child is this one. Mine. You all answered even before I said it. Mine. This is mine. We live in cattle country, and even the ranchers every year prove this to us, that they know which cows and which calves are theirs, and they use a hot iron, or in some cases a cold iron, to brand that animal, which in turn is saying, this is my cow, so keep your paws off. I own this. To get people to voluntarily give now that's something that takes a right heart. For even if we start with a right heart, it's easy to become miserly even in giving to those who are of high status. Again, Israel in their history has made some mistakes, but God was ahead of the plan, of course, and it became part of his plan. God never intended Israel to have a king. For God had told Israel, you don't need a king. He said, I am your king. I am your king and your God. But Israel looked around itself, and like a child in their immaturity, they saw the nations around them. And the nations around them, just like a, a new arrival in high school, the freshman comes in and looks around them and sees the upperclassmen. And oh, they're dressed in high school clothes, and I'm still dressed like I'm in grade school. Oh, the terror of it all. And so something must be done to get up to speed with these more mature, or could we say more worldly, ones ahead of them, and they desire to look and act just like them. 
Well, in Israel's immaturity, such was the same tale. And so Israel looks at the nations around them and they say, oh, they have a king and they have a king. And they have, if we only had a king, if we had a king, everything would be better. All we need is one good king and then things will be fine. And they ask Samuel for a king and Samuel says, oh, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for, but they continue to ask. And so Samuel asks God, and God answers Samuel, and God answers Samuel, let them have a king. But you instruct them what a king will do. And I want to read to you what a king will do by way of commanding a tithe. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. Samuel informs the children of Israel about their coming king that they so desire. He says, he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage. Just count up the tenths, if you will. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and his servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day, because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. You asked to be like the upperclassmen. You asked to be like the worldly neighbors. You wanted a tent. You thought you could voluntarily give to this king. It's great. Just give us a king. We'll be glad to give. Well, as human history goes, they weren't so very glad. They had to be commanded, and then the kings had to force them to it. And even with the pain of their own Levites, even those who were doing the ministry for God, even after Israel had been punished for their lack of following God's law, when they came back and had built a new temple and were supposed to be serving God in it, they didn't obey the command. The book of Nehemiah is somewhat of a difficult book, though God prevails. The difficulty of the book is the humanity in it. If you read Nehemiah, you can't look very far from yourself because it's such a parallel to how fickle we all are as humans. Having returned to the land and been blessed and given the materials to build and to worship their God again like they had wanted for 70 years in captivity, Nehemiah comes and discovers that the commanded tithe that was supposed to be given to the Levites was not being, listen to me, voluntarily given. Nehemiah 13, verse 10, Nehemiah says, I also realized that the portions, that the portions for the Levites had not been given. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So those who had no, no inheritance were looking for land to support themselves on because they were starving to death in the ministry of the Lord. And so it left the ministry of the Lord to go back to plow and plant because the people were not feeding their ministers. They were not providing for them so that they could make it through this world. They were hard-hearted people. 
And so Nehemiah did something about it. Verse 11, so I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil into the storehouse. Did you notice the different areas of tents? They brought a tenth a tithe of the grain and of the new wine and of the oil into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe. And of the Levites, Pedadiah, and next, and next to them was Hannah the son of Zakur the son of Mattaniah, for they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. God seems to have to command us to give. And yet in Hebrews, we find Abraham voluntarily giving this largesse from the spoils of the battle of these kings that he had defeated in rescuing Lot. We have to realize he did it voluntarily. And by the way, did you know that's what God appreciates the most? In the old law, under the Mosaic Covenant, we've just read that it was commanded that they would give for the work of the ministry of the temple. But in the New Testament, it is not so. There is no commandment. Let me say this clearly. There is no New Testament, New Covenant church commandment to give a tithe unto God. Some of you may be shocked. It's not there. You find this tithing in the Old Testament law. And if you would like to give at that level, I encourage you to do so. What you will find is you're going to be giving somewhere around 35%. Not 10%, 35%. Some have the figure higher. So if you want law... It's yours, baby. But if you want grace, if you want what God wants, in our era, we give without obligation. Up to this point, I think I've been to the at this church 11 years, 6 months plus, 7 months. No, 10 months. I got I got lost. And I know I have never specifically taught on giving. Do you know why? Because I have never taught a book that taught on giving. But here I find a giving passage. And I want to compare and contrast Old Testament giving to New Testament giving right now. The New Testament and New Testament giving is not of obligation. It is rather a loving recognition of the greatness of our God. It is a loving recognition of the greatness of our God. Not of the adeptness of our pastor. Not of the position of the pastor. But the greatness of our God. Parallel, Abraham gave to Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. That's what made Melchizedek special. 
and greater because of his God. In the New Testament, that's what we're recognizing. You continue to give to God under the law, even if the Levites aren't following the law because God is great. You continue to give in the New Testament to God because God is great and you are willing. And it is a further understanding of the origin of all of our goods, everything we own. When we give, we are saying, God gave me this. And by giving what I'm giving by way of offering, see, we don't give tithes, we give an offering. We are saying, I offer this back to the Lord. I acknowledge his greatness and that he actually gave it to me. It's not mine anyway. It's a thanksgiving. Second Corinthians, Paul outlines this attitude that I believe Abraham was displaying to us in his ministry of a tithe unto Melchizedek. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Paul says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time, and here's why, to prepare and prepare your generous gift beforehand. I sent these guys ahead to get your generous gift ahead of time, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of, listen, as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Let me read on. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Why would he say something like that? That sounds like something a pastor might say from the pulpit if he wants a bigger offering. If that's all the pastor wants, he would be wrong, wouldn't he? That's not what the context is indicating. He is vying for a generous spirit, not a grudging obligation. Let me tell you what happens as soon as law comes. If I were to tell you, you are required by the law of God to give a tenth of all that you get in the area of your finances, in the area of the fruits of your fields, and of your sons. Oh, you didn't know that was part of it. Yes, it was. As soon as I say that, you would be like the person that goes on the proverbial diet. Says, okay, from today on, I'm no longer going to eat ice cream. And your mind instantly does something, doesn't it? It starts dreaming of ice cream. I've got to have it. So as immediately as the law comes upon any part of our sinfulness, we say, you must, you have to, it's written in God's word, you better give a 10% or you're breaking the law. The rebel spirit in man rises up and says, I ain't going to do it. Or we do things like Ananias and Sapphira, and we say we're going to do it, and then we don't. 
Well, we say we're going to give 10, but we give 9.5. Because, oh, it's so sweet to keep back 0.5% from God. He doesn't need it. I do. No, God doesn't need your money. If you're giving to God because you think God's too poor to take care of his people, you're giving for the wrong reason. I have seen God provide, and I've seen God provide from this house that is so small to provide for me and provide for this church and provide for all of our expenses, and I don't know how it happens. It's mathematically impossible, and yet it happens. And I've never preached on giving here. You give. When you reap what you sow, you sow generously. Knowing that God is a giver of the crop. God is more bountiful than you can ever dream of being. He is more generous than you can ever imagine. And can it be that I should gain an entrance in the Savior's blood? Die he for me? Who caused his pain? That's generosity. And from that heart is what God desires from his children. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's the character of God. Verse 7, so let each one give as he listens. Here's how you give in the New Testament, New Covenant Church to which you belong. This is it. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Whatever you purpose in your heart to give, that then becomes your heartfelt obligation of the greatness of your God and the acknowledgement of his generosity to you. He goes on the other side of the heart. Give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly. So if you come to church and you've said during the week, I've got a hundred bucks to give to God. Oh, I should have said a thousand. Uh, yeah. uh, so if you purpose in your heart a thousand, no, if you purpose in your heart a hundred bucks and then you get to church and you have a grudging spirit, you don't want to, pat, you don't want to part with it. It is my advice to you, keep it in your pocket. Keep it in your pocket. It's not about the money. It's never been about the money with God. Men care about money. God cares about hearts and his own glory. If you give to him grudgingly, you steal from the greatness of God. You say, he's not worth it to me. I'm not going to do it. Then don't. Not grudgingly or of necessity. So if you come in and say, well, I have to give it because somebody somewhere in your life said you're supposed to give a tenth at church, just don't give that. Because you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not in the Bible 
for the New Testament believer. We give generously from a heart that wants to glorify our God and acknowledge that He gave this to us. It's the funnest thing in the world when you get past the obligation. When you get past the grudging necessity. And you get to what you need from God the most. Sometimes we think just a little more money and we'll be okay, right? You know? I can't remember who it was asked. It was Rockefeller or Carnegie or one of those guys that was rich as Croesus. I'm sure if you asked Croesus from whom that name comes, if you asked him, well, how much more money do you need? He would have gave the same answer that I think it was Rockefeller. I'm not sure said. He said, just a little bit more. Because money never satisfies. Can I have an amen? Money never satisfies. But you know what's satisfactory? You know what's more than that? What's joyous is being able to give to God cheerfully. Look at the way that verse 8 ends, or verse 7 ends. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. My advice to you. No, no, no. I'm going to go beyond that. The word of God unto you is to only give cheerfully. Never put anything back there at the back of the church that isn't from your cheerful heart. And when you do, you will know the blessing of it. Who here knows the blessing of giving to God and without it being encumbered? Say amen. Isn't it fun? Isn't it wonderful? I know God loves me. He shouldn't love me. I know God saved me. He shouldn't save me. I shouldn't have any money. But I've got it. And I can give it. And I want to give it. To use something that God has given you for God alone, whether it's your time, whether it's part of what you can do, your talents, or whether it's from your resources, it is the most fun and glorious thing in the world. How did I get into a giving message? I've got more to do, but I'm in giving. I'm in giving because there's an example here in our text about how to give to God like Abraham. Under no obligation. Under no commandment. Under no compulsion. Even those around him kind of thought he was crazy. He gave a tenth of all the spoils he had gathered in that one day's fight. And by the way, swords, armor, the rings, the jewelry, the food, the livestock was wealth indeed. He voluntarily gave a tenth unto God. And do you know how much Abraham took? Do you know what Genesis 14 says? How much did Abraham take for himself of the spoils of this battle? Nothing. He took nothing and he even said to the king who asked him about it, he says, I don't want anyone saying that you made Abraham wealthy. Why would he say something like that? To God be the glory is why. Because he knew God had made him wealthy. And that's all that mattered. To walk away from a treasure trove and yet give a tenth to the work of God. Now that's something. 
So since there was no command in place demanding that Abraham give a tithe, and since Abraham gave willing and generously, it shows us that the standing of Melchizedek because of his God was greater than Abraham. It's a seminal standing for all the family of Israel, for all the Hebrews. standing of the fathers over all sons who are after him and under him in history. Whoever the father of your family is, that guy's the greatest. Eventually we go back to Adam, so that's the greatest one. But in every family, every tribe, that's the famous one. Joseph, if he's your that tribe, that's your tribe. Joseph's the greatest. Abraham gave for all of them. Verse 6, back in Hebrews again, in the first portion. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. Because Abraham is the head of his family. That's why I gave him the title Father in your notes. He is one of two things represented here in Hebrews. He's either the federal head or the seminal head of all of Israel. The federal head or the seminal head. I take the seminal position, but let me give you both of them. Federalism, and this all goes back to the heads of our families and how sin came into the world. Some people say, well, you know, why am I, why am I blamed for what Adam did? Adam, he, he ate the fruit, not me. And if you want to get away from that, you can even blame it on Eve. Adam tried, saying, the woman thou gavest me gave and I ate. But God blames, a God blames Adam for the fall. So he's the federal head in which got us all into this, or the seminal head that got us all into this mess. And federalism says this, that Adam, as the representative head of all humanity, so Adam would be the representative head of all family. So when Adam sinned, he sinned not only for himself, but as a representative, as the federal head of all who would ever come from him. And that happens at the level of our federal government. So the federal government says, okay, I'm going to make a deal with another country. Let's say Iran. And if, even if they make a bad deal with Iran... Veiled politics there. The rest of us have to follow it. Because they're our federal head. We didn't do it. We don't feel responsible for it. But we're obligated to this treaty with Iran. Well, seminalism is different. And this is where I am. And I think that Hebrews teaches this. And so we're to theology class today. You're ahead of the other students who've never been taught federalism and seminalism. Seminalism sees Adam's sin as something that corrupted the human nature and he passed it on to his posterity. So Adam sinned and every one of Adam's sons are born sinners. See, we're not sinners because we sin. 
were born corrupt in our sin, and so we sin. Mine. No, it's mine. Just in case you wondered if it was in your family. So the entire human race was genetically present in Adam when he sinned and sinned right along with him in seminalism. There's a parallel to our text because when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, this teaches us that all his sons, including the Levites, tithed as well because they were still inside him. Look at chapter 7, Hebrews verse 5. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Let's skip down now. Verse 9, even Levi who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's seminalism. So it is like Aaron and all the Levites paid a tithe to this previous high priest, Melchizedek, because they were in the loins of Abraham when he did that. And as the head of that family, they're obligated to think him greater than the Levites. This is to close the package, close the door on any thinking that their Levites are greater. And we understand that even in the New Testament, this is taught in another place about the culpability of all men in sin. Uh, maybe I can just highlight one place, if you'll allow me. Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12 will confirm what I've just been giving you in a theological definition. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered the world, and death through sin, listen, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And we all get to that stage in our life where we want out of that. We don't want that on us, do we? I didn't do it. How come I'm being punished for something that Adam did? I wasn't even there. That same thing plays out in households where general punishment is given even to the older child for not watching the younger child like they were supposed to when the younger child breaks the lamp while the parents are gone. If that didn't happen in your house, praise be. I lived this particular adventure. As a matter of fact, I was the lamp breaker. My older sister Linda, four years older than me, was the responsible one. And she was punished right along with me as though she'd committed the lamp breaking because she was responsible. I realize that's a poor analogy, but that's enough of my childhood anyway. 
The reality is, the Bible is teaching us that sin is on us and in us, regardless of us trying to get out of it. And this goes to the total depravity of man that we are all born in. We are sinners. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins, so says Paul in Ephesians. So this said, Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed where there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So even if you want out of it, too bad, it's on you. Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Here we are back to typology. Adam was a type of the Christ who would come in the reversed portion. Adam brought death. Christ, the antitype, will bring life. Listen, but the gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. How can you be saved? How can it be that one man would die in your place when there's so many of you? He's the head of the family of God. He's the head of the church. He died in your place and it applies to you. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came through the one offense resulted in the condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. You may have forgot Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. where we read oh my pages are stuck there we go verse 11 for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them what Brethren, hold on to that, saying, so this is of Jesus, who's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has Given me, says Jesus. He is the head. He has given to us from his headship a release 
from the family of Satan and an entrance into the brotherhood of Christ and the family of which he is head. Now I want to go back and read chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You may be upset that the sin of Adam was adjudicated unto you and you're guilty because you're a son of Adam. But can you not rejoice that in your head, Jesus Christ, you have become a son of God in the family of God and Christ is your head and it's not by virtue of what you have done and it is not by virtue of your sinlessness, but it's just because you're in the family, you're covered with the glory of Christ. Can you say amen? That's why it matters that Abraham paid a tithe to the great head, God, very God, through the high priest Melchizedek and God most high. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the great things you have done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, our great high priest, for you not only offered the sacrifice, you are the sacrifice for our sins. You paid the price. You opened the door for entry into the presence of God and you stand before God and you say, here I am in the sons, the children whom God has given me. I pray for every children, every child of God today, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and his high priestly ministry. May we trust in you more in ourselves less. And may we give all for your honor and glory, whether it be material or physical or spiritual. And I pray now for those who have no high priest, who are not a son of God, a child of God yet. I pray today you would believe that Jesus is the high priest, that though sin hangs on you like a black shroud of guilt, that Jesus Christ died in your place to satisfy the wrath of God and give you the glorious entry into his family where he will call you both a brother and a child of God Most High. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.